Thank you for listening to TMA's Practice Well podcast. TMA, helping you improve the health of all Texans. TMA has a long, proud history of promoting patient rights, advocating for physicians, and providing real solutions for your practice. We can accomplish so much when we unite in one voice. Call the TMA Knowledge Center at 1-800-880-7955 or visit TexMed.org to find out how you can join or renew your membership today. Did you know that you can claim CME credit for many of the TMA Practice Well podcasts? Just go to www.texmed.org forward slash CME to go. That's www.texmed.org forward slash C-M-E-T-O-G-O to register for your podcast and follow the instructions to claim CME. Policies and Standards of the Texas Medical Association, the Accreditation Council for Continuing Medical Education, and the American Medical Association require that speakers and planners for continuing medical education activities disclose any relevant financial relationship they may have with commercial entities whose products, devices, or services may be discussed in the content of the CME activity. The planners and speakers of this program have nothing to disclose. Please be advised that the information and opinions presented as part of this podcast should not be used or referred to as a primary legal source and does not replace the advice of your healthcare attorney. Hi, I'm Cheryl Kroviak. I manage the TMA Education Center and produce the TMA Practice Well podcast, where we strive to provide practical information as CME to go, webinars, and publications to help you and your practice thrive. In this episode, we continue with the Ask the Expert series, and my guest speakers are Dan Finch, TMA's Vice President of Advocacy, Cara Benson, TMA's Manager of Practice Management and Reimbursement Services, and Julian Rivera, Partner at Hush Blackwell. Today's topic is delegation to non-physician practitioners, their scope of practice, and tips for billing incident two. TMA receives a lot of questions about NPPs, and my guest speakers are going to provide some insight and guidance, and then answer some of the most frequent questions we get from our member physicians. Dan, I'd like to start with you and get a recap of what's happened in recent legislative sessions. I'm not sure I'm an expert, but I've gotten to deal with uh, uh, these issues on the political and legislative side since 2007. Uh, Non-physician practitioners and generally uh, referred to scope of practice uh, expansions. 
and uh, 2021 was no different than any other session that I've been involved with. In fact, uh, everybody always wants to do what physicians do without doing what they've done, which is go to medical school and residency training and pass all the licensure exams and meet the uh, criteria of practicing medicine in the state of Texas. Having said that, there are dozens of bills that are filed every session, not surprising. Uh, and you know, fundamentally, when it comes to prescribing, diagnosing and prescribing, it has been our fundamental and legal principle that independent diagnosing and prescribing is the practice of medicine. Physicians can delegate but must supervise because ultimately they're accountable for the uh, delegated act. And that is uh, general and specific. Just uh, to give you a flavor, a general story about the fact that the scope of practice bills were defeated in the current legislature, legislative session. They included bills that would allow not only independent prescribing by nurse practitioners, but independent prescribing by psychologists, surgical procedures by optometrists, uh, as well as pharmacists' ability to uh, independently test and treat, which we refer to as diagnose and, and prescribe for for common ailments. Uh, none of these bills passed, obviously, but you know, quite frankly, they come up in, in, in every session. And so there is that. I do want to say that there was also a joint letter from TMA, the Family Physicians, Pediatricians, OBGYNs, and the American College of Physicians about Senate Bill 735. And it deals with diagnosing and prescribing of prescription drugs by not certified nurse midwives, but by lay midwives. This bill was introduced uh, by Senator Angela Paxton, uh, never came out of committee on the uh, Health and Human Services. Just as important, uh, perhaps, has been the effort to, and, and the system that we operate under now in the delegation of prescribing privileges specifically for nurse practitioners, physician assistants, is governed by uh, legislation we passed in 2013, which was agreed upon by all three parties. Uh, it is true to our core principle of uh, independent diagnosing and prescribing is practice of medicine, but we did address a lot of the systemic problems uh, related to delegation and, and supervision at that time. And frankly, that law has held up quite well over the last uh, number of years, uh, since 2013. For the first time, we required by the law, Senate Bill 406 passed in 2013, that there had to be a written agreement for delegation. There had to be a prescribing authority agreement between the delegating physician uh, and the nurse practitioner or PA. Uh, we did all this to foster an adherence in a concept of team-based care, uh, that patients get to see provider most uh, trained to take care of their, of their problems, but it is by definition a physician-led team and remains so today. Thanks, Dan. Now, Julian, you've worked with a lot of physicians regarding compliance issues with NPPs. What can you share that will help physicians stay in compliance? I'd, I'd like to share with y'all what happens when you get it wrong or you think you got it wrong or the, the folks on your team didn't get it right. That is a, that's an overwhelming, um, that's an overwhelming thing to learn. And it's frankly disorienting because you're trying to figure out what do we do going forward? And you also need to be thinking about what responsibility do I have uh, to my practice and to the facilities in which we were working or continue to work? What responsibilities do I have in order to document what happened 
and document a solution. And those are two different things. One is what do we do looking forward? What do we do looking back? And so first of all, if it is substantial, get a lawyer, even if you're just getting a lawyer for the sake of being able to say you had a lawyer and you can run your work through that lawyer and get the lawyer's minimal input if you can. And the reason for that is that this analysis should be done in a confidential attorney-client communication so that you can figure out what's going on and develop what the report findings, you know, what are you going to document in terms of what you did in response to this development? Run that through an attorney. It's also really important to make sure that you're getting everything right, because fundamentally, if this is raised, having to do with delegation is raised, then it is going to be a compliance issue. It is a compliance issue. And the best thing to do and the only thing you can do with a compliance issue is to articulate what happened and articulate what you're going to do going forward. That should be done pursuant to privilege so that you can really evaluate what was happening and not be concerned that you're developing some facts that would be bad for you. But more importantly, they're not good facts. They're not accurate. And you don't want to be misinterpreted after the fact in terms of what you said to who and how you were looking at it. So going forward, it's really important to document what happened and articulate what corrective action you put into place to deal with it, if any. Then in that process, before you finalize that conclusion, you need to look back and say, okay, am I on notice that we submitted false claims or we caused the hospital or facility to submit a false claim? For example, did we, did we screw up in, in, was our screw up in terms of delegation and authority, did that interfere with the certification that the hospital had to do? And that is that they certify that they're compliant with the rules, which include very clearly an evaluation by a physician or licensed provider under certain circumstances. So if you don't deal with that issue or at least think about it and document that you thought about it, then when and if this were to emerge, it would be problematic. And I heard something yesterday that um, it really resonated with me. It was a, a conversation with a colleague and, and we were advising a client and the client was sensitive about identifying a problem when there isn't a problem or overdoing a problem because if you just ignore it, it'll go away. And what happens if the government has to be informed of a problem? Isn't it better just to have not seen the problem? And my partner's observation was, that's what good compliance is. And that's what the government wants to see. They are geared to get disclosures, corrections, whatever it is, they're geared to get that. And it doesn't raise a particular flag. Just the fact of reporting it to a facility or to the government or a regulator. So 
when something like this happens, there is only one solution and there's only one opportunity, but it's a big opportunity. And that is to prove compliance. That when this problem was raised, you ran this algorithm, so to speak, you, you did this analysis and you came to this conclusion. And if that conclusion requires corrective action, you corrected it. It helps you because you're now correcting things and being proactive in planning things going forward, but it also helps you articulate the scope of the problem and the scope of the solution so that if somebody comes back and says, well, what did you do when this happened? You can tell them, or if somebody comes back and says, well, what did you do about this other problem that you should have seen? Then you can say, well, I didn't see that, but there have been times when I did see it and I took care of it. Here are my corrective action memorandum. So this is a complex thing and there are going to be mistakes. And I think that if you can keep your anxiety down when that happens and just know that that's part of the process, then you kind of can approach it smoothly. Thank you. Julian, I appreciate your point about realizing there may be mistakes and sharing a process for what should be done when a mistake is made. Now, let's talk about billing for services provided by an NPP. We receive a lot of questions on this, and Carr is going to help clarify some of the confusion. Thank you for having me. I want to start off, I focus on the reimbursement side. And so there are three main things I want to focus on that I'll go over real quick. There are different ways to bill for an MPP. The first one is directly under their own MPI, which they must be credentialed with each health plan. And this is done under general supervision where the physician is available by phone. The second way is incident two in an office under the physician's name. There must be direct supervision employed with the same group or employed by the physician in a solo practice. The plan of care must be established. And there's two situations where a new problem pops up. So the first one is it's an established appointment problem. The patient or the, even the provider notices there's something new, that MPP must go get the physician to do 100% of the workup on the new problem. And the appointment can be combined into a single ENM and built under the physician's MPI. The second, when a new problem is addressed by the MPP, the entire visit in turn must be billed under the MPP's MPI. And then the third way is referred to as shared split. Now this is only in an inpatient, outpatient and ER setting. This does not refer to office. The physician and the MPP can see a patient face-to-face -face in one of those settings and the visit combined can be billed under the, the physician's MPI. If the physician does not go to the hospital and see the patient face-to-face, -face, it can only be billed under the MPP's MPI. 
critical care can never be billed as a shared split. And then as far as documentation goes, reviewing the MPP documentation and co-signing the record is not sufficient um, for reporting the visit. There must be record of meaningful interaction. It must be very apparent that the MPP's documentation was reviewed, the physician saw the patient as well. So there needs to be essentially two separate records combined into one. Thanks, Cara. Now let's get into some of the frequent questions TMA staff receives. Our first is, if the supervising physician is seeing a patient on a regular basis, including annuals, and has the patient see the NPP for acute issues such as a cold, can this be billed incident two? There, there must be a plan of care established for the cold. And so if the MP is seeing the patient for the first time for a cold, that is considered a new problem. Therefore, it would have to be billed under the MP. And if it, if it is minimal like that, um, or if it's a, it's a small thing like a cold, that's something that can be resolved through intake. But unfortunately, Kara is absolutely right there. That's a, that's a very difficult thing. It, the way to analyze it is, did I have a plan of care for a cold? And if the patient had battled with colds before and the MP took care of it, well, then it's arguably part of the same plan of care, but you want to reiterate it. But you're going to run into, into risk if you don't have a plan of care that that fits into. What if another physician in the practice has seen the patient? Do you have to see the patient in person yourself to supervise a particular visit? So the, the common question that I get is in relation to this, and it's, does the supervising physician have to be the same physician that supervises? Um, and the answer is no. In a group situation, it's the, the supervising physician that is on site. Does the physician have to co-sign the visit in the office to bill incident two? I can take this one. Um, from a documentation standpoint, they don't have to come sign, but it's imperative that there is a relationship that is documented to make sure that incident two is easily identified. Yeah, I, I would join you there, Kara, that, that it's important that if you're going to be billing incident two, what proof are people going to be able to look at that you were billing incident to appropriately. And that can just be a policy. In fact, it should be a policy. And if you want to reference it in each medical record, you can do that. I think that's overkill. But you at least want to have a policy that goes through all of the things that should be in place in order to bill incident two. And that's a policy that everybody around you agrees to. And then you've run the traps, figured out what's right for your practice, and you've documented it going forward to everyone. The next question is, to bill incident two, does the NPP have to be credentialed with insurances or is it just the physician that needs to be credentialed? It is just the physician, but there is a but. I, I do 
recommend that MPPs do get um, credentialed because there are going to be situations that you will run into that might not qualify as incident two. And if you're if the MPP is not credentialed, then that does lead to lost revenue. And Kara's exactly right. And clients who have struggled with this that have come to me in the past, a client just recently said that they decided that the amount that they were losing by billing incident two was not worth the complication. So in, in other words, if they were going to bill directly, credential the, the provider, as Kara articulated it, that is going to be the most cost-effective way from a management standpoint, a compliance standpoint, being able to process claims and everything else. It's a lot cleaner if you don't bill incident to, but if you do, you need to make sure that you have a very clear articulation of, of having checked all the boxes so that you know going forward and you can show anyone going forward that billing incident two was appropriate. To bill incident two, is it sufficient for the NPP to come out of the exam room, discuss the patient's case with the physician, or does a physician have to examine that patient in person? So this is going to depend on the situation. If it's for an established problem, then the MPP does not have to come out. Um, they can take care of the patient. If a new problem is discovered, then it is not sufficient. The physician would have to go in face-to-face and do the complete exam, workup, history, all of the gamut. Is it enough to bill incident two if the surgeon dictates at least a key part of the physical exam and the plan? So they would need to provide the initial service for the patient to create the patient's plan of care. Um, If the surgeon had seen the patient when the key part of the physical exam and the plan was done, then the incident two that follows that will have been appropriately incident two. But, Kara, to your point, I think, the, the surgeon has to have done that exam and the surgeon has to have done the plan. Kara, you've said the physician has to do the whole workup, but is it appropriate to have the NP go in and do a history and then the physician comes in and does the physical exam and talk about the plan? My answer would be no, um, because the patient has not been seen in its entirety by the physician to do to, to make the plan of care because the whole picture has not been established. Julian? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I agree with that. And I would say that this is a gray area, but it's only as gray as the physician makes it. So again, if the compliance policy or the the policy for how supervision is going to go, if there's authority somewhere that supports doing it that way, then that ought to be cited and you commit to that. Or consult with an attorney who can help you draw more precise boundaries that are authentic and accurate and transparent 
but the fundamental premise is that there needs to be a physician visit. And if you're going to move to somebody else doing the workup, the physician, like in other things that CARES referred to, the physician has to document their own thorough exam and development of a plan. And I think one of the ways to do that is to look at what's required for the physician to make a claim for that visit. So it's having the nurse practitioner go in is fine, but you need to document that the physician did what the physician needed to do to bill for that visit. And our last question, do mid-levels have to be under the supervising physician on the Texas Medical Board site for starting work? I think for the purposes of uh, the delegation of prescription authority that uh, they do have to be uh, added to the physician's profile on the Texas Medical Board, and that's relatively easy to do. Dan, Cara, Julian, thanks for providing these tips on supervising and billing Incident 2 for non-physician practitioner services. TMA has a robust publication on this topic that covers supervision requirements, credentialing, and billing for non-physician practitioners. The PDF version is free for TMA members at www.texmed.org forward slash education. The link to the Education Center is included in the episode description. We hope you found this episode helpful. Remember to like and follow to receive more beneficial tips like today's episode. Until next time, stay well.